Let me add a second reading to that. Uh, this is an Old Testament passage. And we're going to look at both of them today. They kind of tie together. But this is from Genesis chapter 15. It's on the back of your notes this morning. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abram is talking about the land that God had promised to Abram and his family. So the Lord said, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a, with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. There's a phrase that I want you to think about before we pray, and it connects these Old Testament and New Testament readings. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. Can you say that with me? The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. And we're going to look at one of those hidden puzzles within the Bible that actually has great value to you and me today. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for everybody who's here this morning. Thank you that in the midst of a, a rainy morning, you remind us that you provide for everything that we need at the right time and the right way. And I ask that you'd bring clarity this morning to our understanding of who you are and just how much you have acted in advance on our behalf. Thank you for being the great God who walks through the fire for us, who walks through great difficulty for us in order to let us know that you have done everything that's necessary for us to enjoy eternal life with you and that you can be trusted. Father, we come together here from uh, a week that is full, full of busyness, of work, of decisions, of family, of preparations. Some of those plans and preparations didn't go as we planned, and so we come to this place stressed, seeking wisdom, seeking some kind of help and advice from you. And I pray that as we gather here, as we lift up your name, as we look into your word, and as we build the habit of searching your word together and searching for truth, that you will cause us to grow spiritually, in wisdom, in knowledge, in faith, and that we will be glad that we have done all these things as we see your work in our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
How many of you have ever been to a concert from the Handel and Haydn Society at Symphony Hall? Any of you ever been to one of these highbrow affairs? It's kind of an interesting occasion when you are able to do that. The orchestra members wear tuxedos and black and white, and concert goers tend to dress up to the nines. The music is very cerebral and sometimes intense. Well, at a Handel and Haydn event in Boston this past May, as the orchestra concluded a very serious piece, it was Mozart's uh, Masonic funeral music, there was a hushed silence that filled the room. And then after a couple of seconds, a young boy who was attending his very first concert of that type with his grandfather suddenly called out, Wow! And that wow triggered a laughter like, like this, only it was much louder and it took off throughout the, the symphony hall. And that, in turn, was followed by applause. Everyone agreed with this boy and his wow. It turns out that the conductor, the orchestra, and the people in charge of the Handel and Haydn Society were impressed by that wow as well. Orchestra CEO David Sneed called it, quote, one of the most wonderful moments I've experienced in the concert hall. So they published an ad saying that they wanted to find what became known as the wow child. And they wanted to invite him back to meet the conductor and artistic director, Harry Christophers, and also so that they could give him a recording of the concert because his wow actually made it into the recording. Not only did it make it into the recording, but because the whole thing was broadcast over radio, it actually went as far as being broadcast on NPR all around the country. And this kid became known as the wow child. Fortunately, the boy's grandfather, who had taken him to the concert, spotted that appeal, and then they found out that there's more to the story. The boy's name is Ronan Matten. He's a nine-year-old who's on the autism spectrum. And his family explained that Ronan really loves music, and he's growing to love classical music. Yet he very, very rarely reveals his emotions verbally. And so it was a huge deal to this family that Ronan had taken in this music, had been so deeply moved by it, that he was the only one in the audience who kind of broke the silence protocol and let out this, wow. Now, I chose to begin with this wonderful story because the Bible includes a handful of scenes that at first are confusing to us, but when we understand what God is really up to, they cause this wow factor within us. And I hope that by the end of this morning, you will understand something that God and his son Jesus were up to thousands of years before we even came into the picture. And I remember for myself, I read this passage and I thought, this stuff is crazy when I was a teenager. There's a line in here about a smoking pot, and I thought, you have to be smoking pot to understand this passage of the Bible because there's just no way that this makes sense. But when I finally did, there's this wow that hit me, and I hope that it will strike you today too. Our theme this morning is the brokenness of Jesus. In chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, Jesus plainly began to introduce this theme of brokenness preparing his disciples for the way that he would suffer and die at the hands of Jerusalem's religious leaders. His body would be broken and his blood would be poured out. And this notion of the brokenness of Jesus is so central 
to historic Christian teaching that every time we celebrate the Eucharist or our communion celebrations, they speak of bread being broken as we are told about Jesus' body being given to us. So I have a question. The question is, from this passage in Mark chapter 8 that Jamie read for us a moment ago, why is it that as soon as Peter was the first among the disciples to declare openly, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, why did Jesus immediately launch into this dialogue about his impending death? I mean, there was a lot more love to be taught. Uh, there, was a, there was a lot more that people needed to know about peace and joy and all the things we think about at Christmas time. Why did Jesus immediately head toward being handed over and suffering before the religious leaders, dying and needing to be raised again on the third day? Was this plan B? Where Jesus was beginning to experience some rejection, so a new plan arose? Or was it plan A that God had intended all along? Here's the central idea this morning that's running through this message. Jesus was broken so that we could become whole. I want you to say that with me. Jesus was broken so that we could become whole. That is a powerful truth that rings through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to weave our way back and forth to try and explain what's going on there in Genesis 15. The brokenness of Jesus. Four observations. Here's the first one. His brokenness flows from God's victory plan over evil. His brokenness flows from God's victory plan. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Most of you are reasonably familiar with that story. The first people are given one command from God. You can eat of all the fruit of the trees in the garden. You can have everything that you want except don't eat the fruit from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Truth is, they'd only known good in their lives up to this point. They'd never experienced evil. So we read these words in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, next verse adds to the thought, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the context of these verses rises from Adam and Eve's fall from grace. The first people had been created in God's own image. He loved them. They're given this one command that I explained a moment ago. And by now, Adam and Eve had broken their covenant with God by breaking that one command. We discover through this scenario that all of human life takes place in the context of a cosmic battle between good and evil, God and the evil one. And the evil one has shown up here in the form of a serpent in order to mess things up. Here the Lord was speaking to the evil one in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's fall. And Eve had been deceived by half-truths from the serpent and Adam had deliberately chosen to join her in this rebellion. We learn that the penalty for breaking this particular covenant was death. Living in a perfect world, they'd introduce corruption into their lives and into the world around them. They were deceived into doubting that they could trust God's word. They were deceived into thinking that God's love suspends his judgment. They were deceived into believing there was a shortcut to being like God. 
They were deceived into hoping that the experience of sin somehow leads to greater wisdom. We've all done that. And the result was that sin and death entered the human existence. In response, the Lord pointed to a future redeemer, which is why I chose those two verses and even shortened some of what we read there. The descendants of Adam and Eve would be brought into this cosmic battle, but one member of the offspring from Eve's children would eventually crush the head of the evil one. But in the process, that offspring, that member from Eve's line, would be struck by the evil one. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is the first veiled reference to God's plan and to the cross that we find in Scripture. That the child of Eve who breaks the back of the evil one was Jesus. And he wins that decisive blow on the cross, even though it looked like he was struck down and that he was defeated in that moment. And here, Genesis 3, 14 and 15 was being lived out thousands of years later in the ministry of Jesus. But in the meantime, a substitute would die instead. And so the chapter ends with an animal being slain and the skins providing clothing for Adam and Eve. In the chapters that succeed, Genesis chapter 3, we see this litany of animals year after year who die as, as substitute sacrifices for the sins of people. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve move out of the garden, tarnished by sin but living in hope. They didn't know the details of how this victory would come, but Adam reflects this hope when he gives Eve a name. Eve had been known just as the woman up until this point in Hebrew, and finally at the end of the chapter, she's given a name. And the name Eve means mother of all the living, as if to show that Adam and Eve were living in hope, believing that one of their children one day, somewhere down the line, would become the answer to the problem that they had created. So Jesus' brokenness flows from God's victory plan over evil. Here's the second observation. His brokenness secures hope for our souls. His brokenness secures this hope for us. When Melinda gave us that challenge a little while ago in the middle of the opening worship set, and she said, what one word would speak to you about who God is? The word that hit me as, as I was thinking through what I was about to teach was Anchor, that we need an anchor for our souls. The uh, second one was, was hope. And they arise from the verses I'm about to read from Hebrews chapter six. Again, we're shortening a section because there's a lot of scripture we're dealing with today. But let me read for you some excerpts from Hebrews six thirteen to 19. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Skip ahead to verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I love that last phrase. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure and secure. What are the two unchangeable things spoken of here? The first is God's promise to Abram. An heir, a great nation that he would make from Abram's line, 
and the land of Canaan. All of this sounds silly, of course, to a man who's 75 years old and his wife is nearly as old and they have no kids. The second unchangeable thing was God's oath to Abram, which we read about in Genesis 15. This is the oath of the covenant that God made with Abram. Now, God's pattern with Abram can be summed up with two words, believe and wait. In chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees, which is somewhere near Saudi Arabia, move his way westward to a land that he will show him. I always get a kick out of this. I imagine the scene playing out between Abram and the Lord. The Lord says, Abram, I want you to leave your home, leave everything that you've known, leave your family behind, pick up your belongings, and go to the land that I will show you. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't hand him a map and say, here's the pathway. He just says, I'll show you the land. How will I know when I get there, Lord? I'll tell you. Just go. Isn't that what life is like a lot of times? We don't have instructions. We don't have a blueprint. And God says, I want you to go. I want you to trust me in faith. Just walk. I'll tell you when you're there. I'll confirm to you what's coming next. And the Lord made this promise to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples, that's not a grammatical mistake, means people groups. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There are five specific aspects to this promise. First, God had promised Abram an heir, that there would be a son that would come from his own line, and then he says to Abram, I will, I will make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you land, even though you're going to live the rest of your life as a nomad, moving around in tents. It's going to be land that will be passed on to your family forevermore. And I will make you a blessing, not just a blessing, but I will bless everyone who blesses you. I will curse those who curse you. I'm going to unusually bless you. And the last was that all people groups on the face of the earth ultimately will be blessed through Abram. One of the questions we have is, how does that happen? And I would imagine that was a huge question for Abram that day. He's thinking, Lord, how on earth are you going to bless all people groups through me, some nomad who lives in a tent, doesn't even have a son, and you're really going to do this? Oh, by the way, I'm 75. By the time that God renews the promise, he's 99 and still doesn't have a son. Genesis 15:6 tells us something about Abram. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him, or in other words, counted as righteousness. In other words, what God really wanted was Abram's trust. It wasn't about doing all these things to impress God. It was about a trust-filled relationship. And then the weight factor kicked in. After all, we learned that Abram was 75 when God called him. And so Abram, in the early part of chapter 15, asks two questions. The first question he asks of God is, who's going to inherit my stuff? I, I don't see the heir here, and if I were to die today, Eleazar, my servant, he would get everything. And God answers him, and he says, Abram, I want you to do something tonight. I want you to go outside when it's dark, and I want you to look up into the sky and start counting the stars. He says, I know this sounds crazy to you, but I'm not only going to give you an heir, I'm going to give you so many descendants that they will be like counting all the stars. Let me figure when you got, when, look at, give me the number when you got them all counted. <laughs> you know, 
You and I can't possibly count all the stars. And then he asks a second question. He says, um, what about the land? Specifically, he says, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so God began to enter a covenant with Abram. By the way, this is often the way that God works in our lives too. He calls us to believe in his promises and then we learn to wait for the Lord's timing. As with Adam and Eve, looking for shortcuts always costs us more than we realize. But in the process of waiting, God builds character while he is teaching us patience. And the New Testament tells us here that the hope that comes through this character development process anchors our souls. In a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to grab hold of that anchor. I would imagine that there are some people here today who feel like you're living in the midst of a storm and everything around you is unreliable and life has not been heading in the direction where you thought it would head. Or you've been trying to break the hold of an addiction or break the hold of some great problem in your life and you need help and you've come to the realization you can't do it by yourself. Do you need an anchor? Do you need that hope for your soul? Hold that thought. So what we're learning here is that Jesus was broken so that we could become whole. So here's the third observation. His brokenness guarantees blessings for the faithful. If I had written that better, it would have read a little bit differently. His brokenness guarantees blessings for those who have faith. It's not about how faithful we are. It's that we have faith in him. And so we come back to Genesis 15, two verses that are critical. It says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. These are the animals that Abram had cut up. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. I'd like to explain what's happening in that scene. Abram had asked about the land. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord began to unfold this covenant with Abram that he was making. And so that Abram would understand in the time frame in which he lived, God used the pattern of Near Eastern treaties. Now, when we sign treaties today, or you, you sign some kind of a deal, somebody gets out a pen and they write their name on there. They sign their signature. So when, when two countries make a treaty, there are official signatures that go on there. Probably more relevant to you and me, when you buy a home, you sit in a lawyer's office or somewhere else and they bring out this big stack of documents and you sign and you sign and you sign and you sign and you initial and you initial and they've got your signature on all of these promises that are saying here's what happens if you follow through and here's what's going to happen step by step if you don't come through on your end, right? How many of you signed a deal like that? Moses, how Many of us more than one time, and you, the first time you do it, you say, is this ever going to end? I can't believe all the stuff I'm signing. The second time, you don't even look at it. You just go, this is the drill. <laughs> so here's the question. When God makes a covenant with Abram, who will sign? And how will that take place? These treaties also usually took place 
with a greater power and a lesser power. In other words, it's more like there's the owner who becomes the lender and there's the borrower who's on the hook for something. There were several features of these covenants, these uh, treaties at that time. The first had to be a promise and an oath. In other words, there are promises of saying, I will do this, and the oath is, here's the penalty that comes if I don't. We'll get into that in a, minute, in a little bit. Often there was shedding of blood that was a part of these Near Eastern peace treaties. Often two parties would cut their wrists a little bit and they would cut them in the same place and the two parties would put their wrists together so that their blood would flow from one to the other and they would mingle their blood. We've seen that in old movies that some of the Native Americans did that when they struck a deal because they didn't have writing of our type in that day. Some historians say that our habit of shaking hands when we reach an agreement with somebody actually emanated from that ancient practice of cutting the arms and allowing their blood to flow together. I think it's a little more civilized that we shake hands. But when we do that and we make an agreement, it's saying, this is my word. My, my handshake is my bond. I'm promising that I'm going to come through for you. Along with that was this practice of cutting animals in two. And you might read that and say, how bizarre. The Bible really includes some strange stuff. So God says to Abram, I want you to bring me a heifer, a ram, and a goat, plus a dove and a young pigeon. And then Abram brought them all together and he knew what to do. And he, he literally killed the animals and he cut the carcasses of the heifer, the ram, and the goat in half. And he laid them side by side with sort of a walkway in the middle so that each half was opposite the others. The birds are too small to cut up that way. The expectation was that one or both of the parties making this covenant would have to walk between the animals. Usually, the lesser party, in this case that would be Abram, would be expected to walk between the animals that are signifying death. And the meaning is, when the person would walk that line between the animals, he was saying, this is what should happen to me if I fail to live up to my side of the covenant. Got the picture? The animals are laid out. You're making a deal with God, and God's about to say, you think, I want you to walk through here because if you don't keep your word and you break the covenant with me, it's over. And along with this cutting of animals would come a covenant sign. And so there are a handful of covenants that God makes with people from time to time where there are signs. What was the sign that he gave to Noah, for instance, after the flood? The rainbow. In this case, here's another sign. The covenant sign for Abram would be circumcision that would take place with all the males that would be his descendants. Along with this would be a change of name. The point was to mark one's identity in the terms of the covenant so that one would embed the name of the other party in his or her own name. So think of it this way. If I entered into a covenant with Todd Shimshack, I would take Todd's name into my own. So I would, in effect, become Paul Shimshack Atwater. That's a mouthful. And Todd would become Todd Atwater Shimshack. When this covenant is renewed, Abram 
whose name already is kind of silly because his name Abram means father of a nation and he doesn't have any kids. And oh, by the time we get here, he's just about 99, not 75. And God says, I want to change your name. I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. In fact, I'm going to change your wife's name. It's going to go from Sarai to Sarah. And God's own name changes too. God allows himself and speaks of himself from that point on as, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. And he embeds Abraham and this promise into his own name so that we would be reminded of the covenant. In fact, in future generations, it would go from, I am the God of Abraham to I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, his son, and I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his grandson. And for centuries, God revealed himself that way. Another little interesting thing, part of what God does with both Sarah and Abraham and changing their names is he takes two letters from his name, Yahweh, I am that I am, and he embeds those two letters in Abraham and in Sarah so that part of God's name becomes a part of their name from this point on. And then something amazing happens. The Lord appears as Abram falls into this deep sleep, and he appears as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Fire and smoke were often symbols of God's presence. It reminds us of the fire and smoke up on top of Mount Sinai when God met with Moses. It reminds us of the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud during the days of the Exodus that sometimes followed or protected or led the people of Israel. The official name in uh, ecclesiastical circles for a fire pot is a brazier. Abraham most likely took a brazier, a small metal pot with fire in it, when he climbed to the Mount, of, Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. This was the sign of God the Father's involvement in this covenant with Abram. So the fire pot's not that hard to figure out. But what about the blazing torch? Have you ever wondered about that? God's presence was often seen as a bright light surrounded by clouds. The rabbis in the old world referred to this light within the cloud as God's Shekinah glory. The gospel in the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the true light that shines in the darkness. John's gospel includes those, world, those words. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is, quote, the radiance of God's glory. All of a sudden, pieces start to fit together and the conclusion becomes reasonable to us that the blazing torch that appears alongside of this fire pot is the symbol that Jesus used for himself, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus as God makes the covenant with Abram which would mean that not only does God do something unthinkable, but Jesus does something unthinkable. And then at that moment, these two images of God that Abram can see kind of in the foggy distance walk through that line of carved up carcasses. Instead of Abram being asked to walk through, God does it. So what's the big deal, right? It's this. 
God does something in that moment that is absolutely unthinkable. And he says, I will be the one to walk through. Meaning, if the covenant fails for any reason, I take the blame on myself. I will take the penalty on myself. I will take the hit. I will be the one. Even though I'm immutable and timeless, I will be the one to experience death and I will take on this penalty for you. Abram wasn't asked to take that walk. He was asked to believe and to honor the Lord as the only true God and to follow him. You know what keeps us from making covenants with God or agreements with God? Usually fear. What if I can't keep my end of the bargain? The last thing any of us wants to be is a hypocrite. A person who makes promises that we can't keep. You know, God knows that about us. He knows we have that fear. He knows we have that great inability to often keep our word consistently. And here's the amazing thing. God, in two profound symbolic gestures, the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch, he walks through as if to say, let this happen to me if you break the covenant. When you break the covenant. When you fail. Here's the good news. The Lord took that solemn walk on our behalf. In this covenant ratification ceremony, the Lord himself promised to take the penalty for us. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, who I think is one of the best theologians of our generation, says of this, this is the gospel. This is the whole gospel right here in Genesis 15. Jesus promised to Abram that he would take the penalty for our failure upon himself. This is grace. This is the grace that calls for us to believe just as Abraham. And this is why Jesus was so insistent when they figured out who he was, that he was the Messiah. Where immediately he said, you have to understand what's coming next. The Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders. He will suffer he will die, and on the third day, he will be raised again. Because this was not plan B. This was plan A all along. And God was allowing Abram a glimpse of just how grand his grace is. Jesus was broken so that we could become whole. One final observation, number four. If you put all this together and it makes sense to you, here's the conclusion that we reach. Jesus can be trusted with your brokenness. Jesus can be trusted with my brokenness. Jesus can be trusted with our brokenness. Matthew's Gospel says this of Jesus, quoting from Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations put their hope. 
Matthew was quoting a prophecy about Jesus. It's found in Isaiah 42, written some 600 to 700 years before the time of Jesus. And what we discover from it is that Jesus is gentle with lives that are like bruised reeds, that somebody has come along and broken and bent over in a way that will never come back all the way, or smoldering wicks. The bruised reed is a person whose life has been broken by the harshness and the curveballs of life. A smoldering wick is a person who's just barely keeping that flame alive. You're holding on to the last vestige of hope, but you feel like it's fleeting, like it's about to go out. Because Jesus was broken for us, he can be trusted with our brokenness too. That's why Jesus says in the, in the chapter just before this, in Matthew's gospel, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And we discover there that he is gentle and humble in heart. In him you will find rest for your soul. So, over the past several weeks we have been tracing how God cares for and includes broken people in this series that we've called Beyond Brokenness. And what we've seen week after week, how God uses unlikely, unusual people, people who are left out by everybody else and sometimes does amazing things through their lives. And through this theme of beyond brokenness, what we were discovering is that God the Father and Jesus the Son see past our human brokenness. And through the mistakes and the difficulties and even the shame that we garner in life, our brokenness never limits him. Our brokenness becomes an asset in his hands. And when we understand all this and realize that he's been telling this all the way since the days of Abraham, that's when the wow all of a sudden emerges from the human heart. I didn't see that before. I didn't know that. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament has concealed. And in Jesus, all these things come to light. I'd like to do something as we wrap up this series in the next couple of minutes. I don't often do this, but I'm going to today. I'm going to ask if everybody here would just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to do three things. Listen, think, and pray. And I'm going to ask, is it time for you to trust Jesus with your brokenness? You need to know that Jesus can provide that hope that anchors your soul in the midst of the storm. You need to know that Jesus offered to take the penalty of failing to keep the covenant all the way back in Abram's day. So we should not be surprised that Jesus told his disciples that he had to die and that he would rise again. Jesus died to take my failure, my rebellion, my addictions to the cross. Jesus died to take your failure, your rebellion, your addictions to the cross. And in doing so, he took the penalty for all of these things upon himself. Despite that, some people here have been carrying that sense of shame and that sense of failure for far too long, and you're immobilized. It's time to let it go. So right now I'm going to ask some of you to do something while everybody else is keeping their eyes closed for a minute. 
I'm going to ask some of you to raise a hand and keep it up for a minute. If you realize something this morning you didn't realize before and you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, raise your hand. Wow. Okay, you can put those down. If you've been broken by the addictions of life and you need to turn that over to Jesus and you realize you can't do it on your own, raise your hand. He'll help you. He'll be your strength. I want you to repeat these words in prayer to Jesus. You can do it silently or you can do it out loud if you dare. I'm gonna go slowly. Lord Jesus, today, I realize that you were broken so that I might become whole. Forgive me for trying to live life my own way. Take leadership in my life. I need you to lead me. I want to turn from the path of sin and selfishness. Fill me with your grace and peace. Make me whole on the inside. And give me the patience to wait for your timing as I watch you patiently work in me to bring growth in my life and to make me more like Jesus. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, that you will make us whole, that your power will break through to us, that your promises and your trustworthiness will become the anchor for our lives that holds in the midst of life's storms. And we ask that you will follow through on your part. We know that you do. And that you will pick us up every time we stumble as we try to live up live out our part of the bargain too. And so we come to you in simple faith, saying, here I come, Lord, help. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Here's the one simple thing that I've said this morning. Jesus was broken so that we can become whole. And you can become whole too. I'm going to invite our uh, ushers to come and we'll receive this morning's offering. Thank you for being a part of North River. Thanks for being here during this Beyond Brokenness series. We're going to change gears next week as we head towards Advent. We're going to look for the next several weeks, five weeks, at uh, gifts of Christmas. And uh, so we're going to start on that next Sunday. If you'd like to talk with me afterward about some decision you made this morning, uh, I'll hang around as long as necessary. But thanks for being here today.